Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. For those I've not had a chance to meet personally, my name is Marianne Buddy, and it is my privilege to serve as the bishop of this diocese. I've been bishop now for seven and a half years, and among the great joys of my work has been to walk alongside your uh, incredibly wonderful and gifted clergy, Andrew and Amanda, your lay leaders here at Grace, and to see the unfolding of ministry here in this congregation. And I have been looking forward to this day for some time. Should you happen to be a guest in worship today on behalf of Christ and its congregation, I welcome you. And I'd like to begin my thoughts today with a question that I wonder uh, if you have asked. It's um, listening to the gospel text and hearing Jesus speak about what was before him. I find myself wondering, wondering when Jesus knew. That he knew, when he knew that it wasn't going to be enough for him to heal people and to cast out their demons and to teach them parables. I wonder when he realized that he would need to become a parable, if you will, a living expression of something much bigger than his human life could hold. When? When did he know that he had to die? I... Um, my stepmother died last week, and um, about a month or so, she said to us all, um, it's time. It's time to stop all the treatments. It's time to stop all the efforts. I want to go home now and, um, and prepare to die. It strikes me as, as such a courageous thing, such a momentous awareness, um, a privilege to witness someone reaching that space. And when did Jesus know? In scripture, there are so many answers to that question, and all of them are a bit ambiguous, as I'm sure Jesus would have wanted. After all, you know, the parables that he taught always had layers of meaning. How could it not be so for this parable that he would become in his death. From the sources we have that describe Jesus as more divine than human, he always knew it was his destiny to die. And from those sources that describe him as more human than divine, he, he never knows exactly for sure and he resists to the end. Do you remember how he prayed in some of the versions of the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, he said, Abba, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But even in his most human, the likelihood of death was always before him. And you know, he was such a young man. And as we just heard him say, I must be on my way, for it is impossible impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. If he was going to die, it would not be as a victim, but as a prophet 
a manifestation of God's redemption. So when did he know? When do any of us know that it's time? Perhaps not to die, but to be on our way, to be about something important. When have you and I known that we were up against something that we could no longer overcome or avoid? How do we know when it's time to cross over from one way of being who we are to some other way, and when we know that the transformation required is going to be anything but easy? Jesus had his suspicions all along that he would die young. He tried to warn his disciples and prepare them for what was coming, but they never wanted to listen. It reminds me of what happens when, in a family when, when one, is ready, one of us is ready to say something that the others are not able to hear. And when it finally happens, as Jesus said it would, the disciples are stunned, unprepared, and they're ashamed because deep down they had known all along and yet they refused to acknowledge to Jesus that they knew and that meant that he had to carry that burden alone. In family systems theory, there's this assumption that when one of us in a family or a community knows something, particularly when what we know is painful or frightening or bound to cause some disruption in the family or in the community's equilibrium. The theory is that the moment we know this about, we know whatever that truth is, everyone else in the family knows it too on some level beyond our words. For example, if, if one of us is facing a serious illness or death or is preparing to leave or has done something wrong or is changing in some profound way, the entire family knows. We may not know that we know, but we know. And that's why speaking truth to one another is so important and why keeping secrets from each other is so destructive. Because keeping the knowledge to ourselves secret, keeping something that everyone knows secret, simply means that that truth falls into the realm of unconsciousness beyond our reach, leaving everyone alone with this unacknowledged truth. And sometimes we don't want to know what we know. And so we choose to forget. We choose not to know something. But the energy required to forget what we know is costly, both to the psyche and to the fabric of our relationships. We lose a lot when we choose not to know something. And I think that's why Jesus talked about his death for so long before it was obvious. He knew it was better to speak that difficult truth, even if his closest followers couldn't, couldn't acknowledge what they heard. Think of the scientists and the people on our planet who are trying to warn us all about the destruction of our environment and how we all know what we know and yet how, how we all want not to know and to pretend that it's not true, right? It's that kind of, we just don't want to know what we know.
Going back to Jesus now, related to this question of when he knew he had to die is an even more perplexing question, and that is why? Why did he have to die? Quite apart from the political answer that he died because he was a nuisance to the Roman authorities and he was a threat to the religious leadership, there's this more haunting religious answer. He died, his followers concluded at last, and three centuries later wrote down in the creeds that we will soon recite together. He died, we say in faith, he died for us. He died for us and our salvation. Now many of us, I don't know if you're among them, but many struggle with what these words mean even as we recite them. Clearly, they mean different things to different people. I dare say this concept of Jesus dying for us, and in particular, dying for our sins, is one of the greatest attractions of Christianity for some and the biggest stumbling block for others. I've lost count, frankly, of the number of people who have told me that they've lost belief in God or they don't believe in God, and when I ask them to tell me about the God they don't believe in, they describe this one who demands the sacrifice of a blameless son to atone for the sins of the world. And who would want to believe in such a God, they ask me, and, and they're right. That view of why Jesus had to die, which if you're interested in theological circles is known as, um, get ready, penal substitution, Jesus' innocent death as a substitution for the punishment we all deserve, now, that is a justifiably offensive idea, no matter how sympathetic we might be to those who originally conceived of it, and it flies against everything we know about a loving God, right? So it just defies logic and it defies um, our experience. And we could spend an entire year's worth of sermons, and I promise you I won't be up here this long, but um, we could spend an entire year exploring all the different ways Christians understand and interpret the meaning of the cross. And we ought to, right? This is a big deal, and it is Lent after all, right? And no matter how we talk about it, the cross, I'm wearing one around my neck, the cross and the reality of sacrifice is central to the faith. If we're going to be a Christian, we can't get around that idea um, this is what in, 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 in Christian theology is known as atonement theory. It's the way we try to understand what happened on the cross. And one, one theologian documented as many, as many as 10 different ways that Christians have tried to understand this. And all I want to say to you by way of preparation for what I'm going to say is that there are, there are, there are, we can all look at it at different ways, but no matter how we look at it, we will never get beyond this idea, this very challenging idea of sacrifice. So let me start again. And this is from a different angle um, by way of a story. I once attended a conference, this is years ago now, with a group of spiritual leaders brought together by Trinity Institute of New York City. And one of the participants was this monk who served as our spiritual director, and he was like the retreat leader for the rest of us. And he was about as spiritual looking as a person could be. He wore the black cassock, he had the large Celtic cross, yet he was utterly unpretentious. He was always the first in line for food. 
He was quick with a joke over dinner, most of which I could not repeat in this sermon. And he was the only one who excused himself every night to go watch television and uh, loved him. And one morning, he spoke to us about a pivotal experience in his life and in his faith. He was one of those young men destined to be a priest from early childhood. He was a real goody-two-shoes, and he became a good monk. He was a good priest. He was highly sought after for his insights and his dedication. He was a rising star in the religious world. But there was another side to his life. It was hidden from view, and it was one of chaos, depression, and alcohol. And it didn't catch up with him until he was in his 40s. In truth, it, he, it never really caught up with him in that he could have kept going for, for years because his shadow side was not overtly destructive to other people and he was successful at keeping it at bay. And despite this inner duplicity, he was very good at helping people. But the, the deception exhausted him. And one day, one very courageous day, he decided to stop hiding. It was the scariest thing he ever done, he said. He, it was the first time in his life that he had been completely honest. And that's when he learned something about God that he had never known before, he said. I realized, he said, that God was there for me too, that grace was for me. I had always thought that grace was for other people, everyone but me. I never knew that God cared so much for me, that no matter how well I served others in God's name, that God did not want me to suffer in silence and in shame. Do you know that for yourself, he asked us. Do you know that God is there for you too? I'm asking you now, friends of Grace Church, do you know that? That God is inviting you and me to face the very things we would rather hide behind our good works and our attractive appearance. And he told us how his view of God and of Jesus had changed as a result of this experience. My original understanding of the biblical story, he said, went something like this. Perhaps you recognize it. He said, we were created by God to tend a garden and to keep God company. But we made a terrible mistake. We did the one thing that God told us not to do, right? And God became angry. So we had to leave the garden, and life was hard. God tried to show us how to live, but we wouldn't listen. God sent people to show us the way, but we wouldn't accept them. Finally, because God was righteous and required justice, and yet realizing how hopeless we were, God sent a perfect one to die on our behalf, a perfect sacrifice to set things right. That was my primary story of faith, he said, and I dare say for many, many people in the church. It's what we tried to accept, or it's one that we eventually reject because it makes no sense. And one problem with the story is that we are completely passive in it. There's nothing for us to do except ex after accepting what God has done for us. It doesn't teach us how to live, 
nor does it explain why we're even worth redeeming in the first place. But there's another story of faith. It's from the exact same Bible, which has become my story now, the monk said. And it begins in a different place, and it goes something like this. God created the world, and it was good. God created us, and we were good. We were created to keep God company, to share in the work of creation with God, and to be a blessing to the world. But things often go wrong and get in the way of blessedness. We make mistakes. We make, sometimes we make terrible mistakes. The world can be a harsh place, and those we depend upon can let us down. Evil runs rampant sometimes. But even in this imperfect world, even in our imperfection, God calls each one of us by name again and again to remind us of our blessing and of our work alongside God. And sometimes God will take us out of places of our comfort, just as he did with Abraham, as you heard read earlier, and lead us to a new place for a new purpose. And we are never perfect as instruments of God's design and God's efforts, but God remains steadfast. The entire biblical story from beginning to end is one of God's steadfast love. And Jesus, for Christians, for Christians, Jesus is the culmination of God's love story. It's the ultimate expression of what it means to be fully alive and reconciled to God. And his death is a symbol of the length God will go to set us free and to make us whole. And the reason God does all this for us is because you and I are God's beloved, and we are God's partners in redeeming the world. And it is astonishing to realize how much God needs us, needs you and me to do our part, large or small, in this work of reconciling and healing and truth-telling and peacemaking. So it matters. It matters that we are self-aware It matters that we are as honest and as healthy as we can be because God needs us to be strong and to be whole for this great work. So let me ask you again, friends, do you believe this? Do you believe, can you dare to believe that God loves you and that God needs you to be strong, as strong as you can be and as whole as you can be for the great work that God has given to you and that God works through your brokenness, not, not, God doesn't shame you or me in our brokenness. God works through us, even in the ways that we fail. We just have to be clear about this, and then on our way to wherever God is calling us to go, and we have a crossing over to accomplish, and we have truth we need to acknowledge. I don't know what your work is to do. I have some sense of what mine is. It can be, it can be anything. It can be a relationship that we need to reconcile. We may have secrets that we need to disclose. We have new possibilities and doors that are opening for us to consider. We all have work to do. And Jesus is quite clear that there's some pain involved in this process, as there is with any birth and transformation. There is even sacrifice. But he will go with us to show us the breadth of God's love and the lengths that God is willing to go 
for your sake and for mine. And his death is simply a parable, a story, to show us how redemption works, that out of pain there is joy, out of fear arises courage, out of death comes life. We are transformed by death to life.